chapter 44, Saturday, January 18th, 1777. That the question was not whether, by a declaration of independence, we should make ourselves what we are not, but whether we should declare a fact which already exists. Thomas Jefferson, about the writing of the Declaration of Independence. I folded the map and pass, blew out the candles, and crept down the stairs. I took the scissors out of the sewing basket in the kitchen and snipped the threads of the hem in my, of my cloak. I opened the map flat, inserted it between the lining and the woolen layer, then quickly re-sewed the hem. Next, I dressed myself in all of my clothing, two shifts and two skirts, my cloak, shawl, and the blanket for my palette. I took a basket from a high shelf and loaded it with bread, hard cheese, and a piece of dried beef I cut from the slab that hung in the pantry. As I put the beef back, I studied the loose board in the back of the pantry. I pried it up and removed the lead piece from the king's statue and my cloth packet of seeds. After some consideration, I took out common sense too and stuck all of it in the pocket I wore under my skirt alongside the false pass. I walked down the hall, reached for the handle of the front door, and stopped. Lady Seymour lay in, in the silent par parlor. I doubt anyone had thought to put wood on the fire for her. That was my chore. Oh, not anymore. I was quit of this place. I reached again for the handle. But she was alone, old, and maybe freezing. It would take only an instant. I stepped into the parlor. Lady Seymour lay in her bed, her eyes closed, the covers barely moving. Her fire was near burned down to ash. I quickly added logs and blew on the coals until small flames jumped up and bit into the wood. She wouldn't die of the cold this night, not on my account. I was halfway to the door when I saw her silk reticule hung from the back of a chair. There were coins in that bag, coins that would help a girl set on walking to South Carolina, but that was stealing from somebody who had shown me kindness. But she stood by when Ruth was taken, and she returned me to Madam. But taking her money was still stealing. Twas wrong, but I swallowed hard, opened the bag, and removed the coin purse from the bottom. When I hung it back on the chair, Lady Seymour's eyes were open and following me. The question on her face was plain. I'm sorry, I said. She's made up her mind to sell me. She nodded once. I built up the fire. Would you like some water? She nodded again. I poured a cup of water from the pitcher and held it to her dry lips. She swallowed a little, but the rest spilled down her face. I set down the cup and wiped away the water. I have to go. Please forgive me. Lady Seymour cut her eyes at her husband's small portrait on the bedside table, then to the coin purse that weighed down my hand. She gave a sharp nod of the head, one side of her mouth turned up in a smile. I'll put the money back, I said. Forgive me. She shook her head from side to side, her mouth moving with trapped words. I can keep it? Another nod and another pointed stare at her husband. Because I rescued his picture? She nodded again, and a tear slipped down her cheek. Well then, ma'am, I'm happy to take it.
As I set the coin purse in my pocket, she opened her mouth and a small sound escaped. Did you say something, Lady Seymour? I leaned in close, though it scared me, for the smell of death hung over the bed like a fog. Her lips moved again, forming her last word to me, a whisper almost too faint to hear. Run. I opened the front door of the locked-in mansion and looked up the street and down. Not a soul in sight. I picked up the blanket, tightened the blank ba blanket, excuse me. I picked up the basket, tightened the blanket across my shoulders, and stepped over the threshold. I closed the door behind me, walked down the front steps, and turned west. My plan was simple and foolhardy. Steal a rowboat, cross the river to Jersey, and walk to Charleston. I was counting on the commotion of the Queen's Ball to distract folks. If I could get to the boat in time, the tide would help pull me away from New York. At the first corner, my feet stopped. This is where I turned north most mornings to head up to the Bridewell. Bridewell. I urged my feet west toward the wharf. They did not listen. My rememory called up the feel of being locked in the stocks, of my face being burnt, of him watching me from across the courtyard. Him watching out for me. Twas Curzon who made sure I survived. Twas he who had been my steadfast friend since the day they brought me here. I couldn't. It would be hard enough to sneak past two armies and not get stolen again by someone who would tear up my pass. And I'd even have a pass for him. How to explain that? No, I couldn't. I looked west toward the river, then north, then west again. No, not couldn't. I shouldn't. But I had to. I had a debt to pay. Good evening, sir, I said, holding out my basket to the huge soldier, Fisher, who opened the door to the Bridewell guardhouse. Fisher grunted and yawned. What's your business here? It's going on midnight. I prayed that the Lord and Mama would forgive the river of lies about the flow from my mouth. Colonel Hawkins sent me, sir, to clean the cells, as you suggested. The guard stepped inside, and I followed him. He sat heavily in a chair and drank from a mug on the table. Terrible late to be cleaning cells. The colonel got wind of a prison inspector arriving. Nobody told me, he growled. I swallowed hard. Should I flee and give up on this senseless plot? He spat into the fire. But they don't tell me nothing. What's in the basket? Food to keep me alive for a week, I thought. Help yourself, I said. He pawed through it took out a soft roll, and stuffed half of it in his mouth. Maybe I should ask the colonel. I thought quick as I could. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, of course. He's at the Queen's Ball. Fisher winced. Ugh, best not disturb that. All right. He stood slow and reached for the key ring and a lantern on the wall. But don't be asking me to help. Cleaning the cells ain't my job. I took the key. Yes, sir. Wheelbarrow's in the hall, he said. Once you filled it, roll it back here, and I'll let you out so you can throw the muck and filth in the pit. He yawned. 
Mind your breathing. I turned. Pardon? Prisoner's been dropping dead like flies. Fever. The men in the first cell were mostly sleeping, or dying, or dead. None of them had the strength to do more than stare at me in the weak lantern light. I gagged, and gagged again, as I carried out overflowing chamber pots and forced myself to take a blanket from a corpse. Hurry, I screamed inside. Hurry, or it will be too late. Fisher looked up and chuckled as I passed back through the guardhouse with the barrow. I pitched the filth onto the pit behind the prison and prayed it was not going atop any corpses. Before I went back inside, I cleaned up my hands in a snowbank. My teeth rattled with the cold. No fun, is it? The guard asked as I passed through again. He pulled at the blanket around his shoulders. Hurry up now, I need me sleep. Yes, sir. I wiped my hands on my skirt. Almost done, sir. I did not open the door to the second cell, nor the third. I set the lantern in the wheelbarrow, pushed it down the hall to the fourth door on the right, and held my breath as I unlocked it. The stench was overpowering. Men unwashed for months and puke and muck and rot that was eating living flesh. Two dozen pairs of eyes watched me, burning in skull-like faces. No one spoke. I stepped inside and held the lantern higher. The faces were new to me, men and boys who had been moved in here after Curzon's original companions died. Where's Mr. Dibden? I asked in a small voice. Died this morning, croaked a man. Everyone's dying. What about the slave boy? He pointed to a corner. Curzon lay insensible his skin burning with fever. His eyes rolled up into his head. I called his name and pinched him, but he'd not look my way nor speak a word. He'll be soon dead. Leave him and run. A weight settled on my shoulders like a cloak of iron. I bent close to his ear. Shh, I whispered. A blast of cannon fire sounded from the battery. More royal celebrations. A few men looked to the window. He's dead. I stood up. Can someone help me with the body? No one moved. Then I shall do it myself. I grabbed Curzon under his armpits and dragged him across the floor and out the door. It took no effort at all to load him in the wheelbarrow. He weighed hardly more than a large sack of potatoes or a full butter churn. I dashed back into the cell snatched his hat out of the shaking hands of a man who was putting it on his own head, grabbed the lantern, and closed and locked the cell door. I could not ponder the fate of the rest of the men. Some things were not to be borne. Before I pushed him down the hall and into the guardhouse, I covered Curzon with the filthy blanket I'd stolen from the first cell. You're dead, I hissed to him. No noise. In the guardhouse, Fisher was sitting on his bed, leaning against the wall and snoring. He roused some as I shut the door to the cells. Got a nasty load here, I said. Might take a bit to bury it. He nodded, already half asleep. As I pushed the wheelbarrow into the night, my legs shook so hard, I thought sure they'd set the earth trembling and bring the whole building crashing to the ground.